welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 55 for July 14th, 2011. Right, so this is our second foray into the original series, Volume 2 by DC Comics. Yes. So and we'll do 4, 5, and 6, and these are really good issues, I think. There, continued goodness from Peter David and the team. Right. I think it's the same team also. Well, yep. James Fry is the the artist. James Fry is the artist on this one, and the, the, all three of these. Was it James Fry in the first three? Uh, I don't know. I have to look. It might have been. I don't know. Okay, we'll worry about that later. Well, definitely for this tri- this trio of stories, they're all James Fry. And right. uh, why don't you do the first one? All right. So the first one is Star Trek Volume Two, Number Four, called Repercussions. Uh, Cover date of January 1990. Writer Peter David. Penciler James Fry. Inker Arnie Starr. Letterer Bob Piena. Colorist Tom McCraw. And editor Robert Greenberger. And obviously Star Trek based on characters created by Gene Roddenberry. So the cover starts with Spock's in the foreground. And he's looking back at McCoy, Kirk, and a woman in a black outfit with the title Repercussions on the front. So we start off at Starfleet HQ, where the council president is paying a visit to the Klingon ambassador. The Klingon is reading an actual paper book. The president asks the Klingon if he's still serious about the bounty on Kirk's head. The Klingon assures him that they are, and then we see that the title of the book he's reading is 101 Ways to Kill a Human, Volume 3. We cut to the Enterprise Auditorium, where Kirk is addressing the whole crew. He informs them that there's a price on his head by the Klingons, and offers anyone the opportunity to transfer to another ship. Back on Earth, the Klingon ambassador and the president are still having a discussion when they're interrupted by someone who looks a little like Captain Stiles from the Excelsior. I don't think it's him, but he looked a lot like him. He has urgent news. And that is that Sala of the Nazgul has arrived and wishes to address the council. Back on the Enterprise, Sulu and Chekhov are discussing Kirk's announcement. Sulu does make some sort of Kafka joke, which Chekhov hardly enjoys. Uh, Then Lieutenant Kathy Lee arrives and Sulu awkwardly gets Chekhov to leave. Kathy Lee and Sulu flirt a bit back and forth, and both of them agree that they are staying on board. But Kathy does end the conversation for the moment. As they depart and go their separate ways, we see an enraged Miari, or Miara, I think is how you pronounce it, who has overheard the whole thing and is not too happy. Kirk is discussing some repairs with Scotty, but is called away due to a private message from Admiral Galloway. Kirk takes the call in his quarters, and he is bawled out and accused of killing the Chironian Three leader. That was back last issue. Uh, Before Kirk can fully explain what happened, he is ordered to report in person and is advised to bring counsel if he wishes. So things do not look good for him. Back on Earth, Sala is addressing the whole council. He is interrupted by the Klingon ambassador, who Sala easily lifts with one hand and throws across the room. Sala lists his long list of grievances against uh, the Nazgul people and demands that Kirk be handed over to the Nazgul for justice. In Admiral Galloway's office on Starbase 24, Kirk and Spock explain that Kirk did not actually kill anyone, just transported him to the other side of the planet and made it look like he killed him. Galloway does not take this news well. On the Enterprise, Scotty and Uhura have a heart-to-heart about the events in Star Trek V. 
They agree that they are just friends, but Ahura hints that she might perform her special leaf dance for him in the future so that they can both feel young. Galloway visits with Ambassador Palmer, who was beaten up last issue in number three. Palmer says that Kirk broke several rules and should be fired. But then he also says that if he had a medal, he would pin it on Kirk's chest personally. On Earth, the Klingon ambassador and Sala are having a bidding match on which race can have the highest bounty for Kirk's head. Back on Starbase 24, Kirk is informed that he will have a protocol advisor assigned to him. Kirk is enraged about this. He's feeling like a novice captain again. Later, he is having drinks with Spock and McCoy and discussing his plight. He is not looking forward to having some grumpy old man looking over his shoulder and commenting on every decision he makes. They are called to the transporter room for the arrival of the advisor, and they are shocked to see that it is a beautiful woman and in a very exotic, low-cut outfit. To be continued. So no, I like this one. I thought it moved pretty well. It was a lot of... All three of these have a lot of bouncing, bouncing back and forth from Earth to whatever Kirk's doing. So it's kind of doesn't get over the top, I don't think. No, no. Things move along well. They have a nice bit of humor injected in many of the issues. Not all of them, but many of them. And um, the pressure continues to build for Kirk, who is definitely under a lot of pressure right now. Yeah, I like seeing Sala come back. It seems weird that he would go to the uh, council to try to, you know, file a complaint or whatever. It seems like he council. would. Yeah. yeah, seems like he would be the kind of guy that would just go out and track him down himself. Well, that's what I thought was. I agree. <clears throat> that's what I thought was going to happen in the first place. It would be more like both the Klingons and Sol are going to go after Kirk directly uh, and the Enterprise directly. But uh, no, they're going through and trying to get. Um, the Federation Council to cough them up, which is really, yeah, I agree with you. I'm, I'm surprised that they're going that route. Yeah, and and you know, Solo will be in all three of these issues, and and I have some comments about him. That <clears throat> I mean, here he still seems kind of in character from what we've seen. He doesn't really take a lot of grief, and as soon as the Klingon got in his way, he lifted him up with one arm and threw him across the room. I, I think they toned down his character quite a bit here in the next couple of issues. Yeah, he definitely is not as emotional and crazy as he as he was the first time we met him. But uh, I'm surprised how strong he is. I mean, he's a, he's darn tall, but he looks kind of thin. But he he picked up the uh, Klingon and threw him like a rag doll. Right. Yeah, he's definitely about a head taller than the Klingon, at least. At least, right. So. so. Uh, I thought it was a good issue. More setup happening for things that are going to come down the road. Uh, I thought it was kind of funny to see uh, the Klingon with the book, 101 One Ways to Kill a Human. And that's very good that you noticed it was Volume 3. I did not notice that when I first read it. And it was written in English, which I thought was funny. So he's on ah. Earth reading a book that looks very much like any kind of book here on Earth, right, written but... in English about how to kill humans. Yeah. Well, in reality, quote, air quotes, reality, I'm sure it was a, it was written in Klingon, but if it was written in Klingon, you wouldn't be able to understand it, I mean, when you're reading the cover. (laughs) So, they made an allowance for the audience. Okay. I think. Uh, No, you're probably right. um, When I was a kid, there was a book, 101 Uses for a Dead Cat, that had come out, and for all of you that like cats, sorry, I didn't write it, I'm just, I'm just talking about it. So I wonder... If that book or other books that that have the 101 whatever thing was part of the inspiration for this uh, this particular book, I'm sure it is. But I kept thinking of the uh, what was it? A, was it a Twilight Zone episode or is it a, a short serve story? Serve mankind. About... Yeah, how to serve mankind. That's what I kept thinking of when I read that. Yeah. Was now, that a that Twilight was... Zone episode or a, a Ray Bradbury book story? It was definitely a Twilight Zone episode. Whether it was okay. an, whether they had adapted it or gotten the idea from a, a previous work, I don't know. But that was definitely a Twilight Zone story. Okay, good. And uh, and it was the dual, it was the dual meanings of that title, and uh, and the linguist 
who was on the spaceship going, you know, a group, a select group of people, the first people that go back with the aliens to their world. And he's a linguist and he's translating this book and all they know is the title. And then on his way there, they figure out it's a cookbook <laughs> uh, as opposed to something that actually is trying to benefit mankind. It's kind of funny. Right. Uh it was actually a short story uh, written by Damon Knight. I thought it was written by Ray Bradbury, but I was wrong. Damon Knight. Cool. <clears throat> it made a good episode of The Twilight yeah, Zone. it was a great episode. So I, I got a question, and maybe you can yeah. fill me in on this, because maybe I just don't know Federation politics that much. But it was something that confused me in Star Trek VI, too. Why is there Klingons and Romulans as part of the Federation Council if they're not part of the Federation itself. I didn't know there was. There, there was a Romulan in the peanut gallery? There was a Romulan in Star Trek VI, and when I was watching Star Trek VI, I'm like, ah, I kind of understand why they would have like an ambassador there. Right. Uh, you know, just try to try to get some sort of a relationship with the Romulan Empire, but right. here it seems like the Klingon, this Klingon ambassador has some weight, and he actually refers to the president as our esteemed council president. Which I wouldn't understand. I didn't understand why the Klingons would be part of this council. I wouldn't think they would be uh, at this point in time, uh, in Picard's time, sure, but not now. I, I, I don't think. I don't. I don't see why they would. Uh, them or the Romulans. Right. So just seemed weird. Yeah, I, I am glad they went ahead and recapitulated what the Klingons' big grievance is uh, against Kirk. Which mainly seems to be the whole Krug thing that happened in Star Trek Three. Then, of right, course, Krug being the uh, the big jerk that killed Kirk's son. Hello, uh, on that planet Genesis. Right, but, but he, did, he didn't have that big a crew. I mean, what was the big deal? And plus, they were sent there to steal Project Genesis. So yeah, that's what I don't get. They were on a covert, illegal. Exactly in planet. in Federation space. Exactly. So and it's not like they killed all of them. Some of them exactly. were captured at the end. Exactly. And but the funny thing is, I don't recall whatever happened to them. Because remember when uh, Chekhov, I think it was Chekhov, took them to the brig or whatever. Uh, how they knew where the brig was in a Klingon ship, I don't know. But uh, anyway, they took them to the brig, and I don't think I ever saw them again. I don't think they ever mentioned them again. Well, they um, probably when they got to Vulcan, they. Uh, that's what I. Or was no, thinking. they didn't go to Vulcan, did they? They did. Go oh to no! Vulcan. Yeah, they did. They went to Vulcan to tell uh, the father. No, no, no. No, they went to Vulcan no. to get the Katra back into Spock's body. Exactly, but so I'm sure they dropped him off at the you know the Federation consulate there and sent him to either back to the Klingon yeah. Empire or held charges against him to Vulcan. Okay, so they must have got rid of him on Vulcan. Okay. Right. Anyway, um, because I didn't, I, I mean, I knew the things were had gone on in Star Trek three and four. But I really didn't see anything that was so egregious. And then going back to Earth and then doing the whole whale thing. Yep, exactly. Okay, so it was at the very end. Yep. Okay. So did you like that uh, Kathy Lee was in this one again? Uh, I think it's very interesting how that that horned uh, lady, alien, who apparently has such the hots for uh, Sulu, how she's turning out to be a bit of a uh, freak. Right. I mean, jealous, she was... jealous freak. Yeah, and it's it's weird. She already looks like a demon, and now she's <laughs> really angry. <laughs> yeah, in that one picture where basically, it's it's not a big panel, but her face really fills it up. And, and you can't even see all of her face, because it's really focused on her, on her facial features. And she looks really angry. Yeah, she's not happy. No. Too bad. As we'll see in the the coming issues, uh, this poses a bit of a problem for Kathy Lee. So I I did do a little bit of research on Demora Sulu and her her lineage. Mm -hmm. So according to Peter David's novel, Captain's Daughter, Uh Demora Sulu's mother is named Susan Ling. And she was born about 17 years before this story supposedly dated. And that uh, Susan died the same year Demora was born, so that makes Sulu an official bachelor. So he's not cheating on anybody. So you don't have to 
don't have to worry about that. So, and since that book was written by Peter David, and these stories are written by Peter David, I would consider it to be in the same continuity. You agree? Interesting. Uh, you bring up information I am ignorant of. Okay, so well, he's already been married. Bridge. He's already been married, and so this is another uh, and had a child. And so this is another romance that has blossomed. Right. And since her name is not Susan Sulu, I would kind of assume maybe they never actually got married. Oh, hmm. Gotcha. I I read that Captain's Daughter book years ago, and it just talks about her in passing, um, you know, Demora's thoughts or whatever. Um, So, uh, and it says that she was raised by relatives or whatever so she never knew her mother because her mother died when she was just a baby oh hmm. but uh so anyways you you mentioned it last week where you thought that maybe this was going to be demora sulu's mother but but uh, she has another one okay (laughs) well it makes more sense from a timing of how old uh she is the, the the daughter is right all right anything else on this one uh, let's see. I thought the uh, Scotty O'Hara encounter was um, a little confusing. I, I the way I read it, it, I was a little confused whether Scotty was just reading O'Hara's statements in uh, in five, and then later in this book, uh, Star Trek Five, right. um, like a moment of weakness where she just latched on to the closest man her mm-hmm. age. Yeah. Uh, she could find to help alleviate her her guilt over or her regrets over some of the decisions she's made in her life. But then Ahura seems to be kind of serious about this. So in this book, I was a little confused whether Scotty was reading it right or whether he was basically trying to read it in a way that would maybe delay or or cut off. Um, progression of the relationship between he and Ahura, it it, it just it, it was confusing for me. I agree, and especially her last little parting comments where she says, maybe someday I'll get some leaves and, and <laughs> do a dance for you, and we all know that that dance involves her being naked. Uh-huh. So yeah, definitely some mixed messages <clears throat> going on there. Right. Because Scotty says, when I work with my engines, I feel young again. And then Ohura says, when I dance, I feel young again. Uh, and that was the setup to that, that thing you just said there. Let, let, let's both get feeling young, and I'll dance for you. <laughs> right, but she says that last part when he's already kind of out the door. So exactly. it kind of makes me wonder if he even heard that last part. I don't think he did. Yeah. So I, de- I, I, I think Scotty is not in quite the same place as Ohura. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as far as the relationship. Right. We'll see where it goes. But, I mean, I kind of wonder if the, you know, Peter David had his hands kind of tied where obviously they didn't know what would happen in later movies. So they didn't necessarily want to paint themselves in a corner by having them get together when they may get together for the first time in uh, Star Trek VI or whatever, you know? Sure. Right. So, anyways, we'll see what, what happens with that, if anything. Yeah. I thought the bidding war for Kirk's head between Sala and the Klingon was pretty amusing. I thought before this issue that those two would end up being uh, like confederates. You know, they both want to get Kirk. I thought they might actually throw their resources together to get him. I wasn't expecting them to end up being rivals for Kirk's head. But that's definitely the way it's turned out in the story. So, cool. Yeah, but as we'll see, maybe that changes in the future. Perhaps. R.J. Blaze, our new attractive, very attractive and fancy dressing protocol officer is uh, is interesting. Um, they've got her dressed in some pretty interesting outfits in the coming issues. And it's going to be an interesting love-hate relationship. A lot of uh, sexual tension going on between Kirk and her. Right. But I do find it funny. She's obviously part of Starfleet, so she, like Counselor Troy... I guess don't have to actually wear this uniforms. So they can just wear whatever is form fitting and fashion. <laughs> <laughs> Heavy on the form fitting. Uh, I think, I think especially in issue uh, six, I think ish six, 
Yeah. Uh, that 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 absolutely skin tight body. You know, almost like dancing leotard she's wearing with with then the vest thing on top. It's like, man, ooh. I, I'm pretty sure that's just latex body paint. Yeah, <laughs> probably. <laughs> that's probably true. Okay, that's all I have for that one. All right, I'm ready. Okay, so issue number five is Fast Friends, uh, published date February 1990, and we have the same creative team. The issue cover shows Kirk, McCoy, and Spock beaming into a misty planetary surface, surrounded by shadowy, zombie-looking people with glowing pink eyes. The scene opens in San Francisco, in the office of the President of the Federation Council. He is speaking to a seated man named DeFalco, who looks human except for having a beak for a nose and two perfect white feathers for a mustache. Odd-looking guy. They are discussing the latest council meeting, where the Nassel and the Klingon ambassador were actually bidding for which one of them could buy the right to kill Captain Kirk. DeFalco calls the Nassel a fanatic who is less likely to see reason than the Klingon ambassador, if you could believe such a thing. I mean, Klingons are usually nuts. Their decision is interrupted by the presence of Vice Admiral Tomlinson in the president's outer office waiting to see the president. A shadowy, bearded figure is seen stating, Kirk, wherever you are, stay out of trouble. The scene cuts to the Enterprise gym, where Sulu and Kirk are fencing with Lieutenant Lee and R.J. Blaze, uh, the new protocol officer, watching intently. The captain's log entry states the Enterprise is en route to rendezvous with the medical supply ship Nightingale to take on supplies desperately needed by the planet's New Brynden. During the duel, they banter back and forth about the lady spectators. They fight to a draw. Sulu begins to say they should fence together more often, but Kirk warns him off with a look to avoid insinuating the captain does not work out much. After Sulu gets the hint and overcompensates by saying Kirk is constantly working out, McCoy comes in and confirms the reality that Kirk seldom works out, and when he does, it's usually doing something that endangers his life. Blaze recognizes Bones as a wealth of incriminating information and walks off arm-in-arm arm with the good doctor, pumping him for info the whole way. Kirk grimaces and says he should have left McCoy in that asylum with Spock's Katra in his head. Meanwhile, back in the President's office, Vice Admiral Tomlinson surprises everyone by saying they should give the Nozzle and Klingons exactly what they want. In Lieutenant Lee's quarters, Sulu and the lovely Lieutenant share some tea on the floor in traditional Japanese style. Lee shares an observation about her grandmother's strong spark for life that keeps her going. Sulu smiles and caresses her chin and cheek as they get closer for a highly likely smooch. Love is definitely in the air. Later, Lieutenant Lee is leaving Sulu's presence when the horned crew woman, who displayed jealousy towards Lee's relationship with Sulu, bumps into her roughly from behind. They have a brief and inconclusive interaction over Sulu. Security officer Voon gets Chekhov to check out his latest invention. It's a phaser-proof vest made of dense, superbonded molecules. Chekhov checks it out by firing a live phaser at a mannequin that is wearing the vest. The mannequin falls to pieces, but when Chekhov picks it up, he discovers the vest is not only super protective, but is also super heavy. No human could possibly wear it for a prolonged period of time. At first, Voon is excited about the fact that the vest is unharmed. Since what it was protecting is in pieces, he turns on a dime into gloomy Gus. Chekhov encourages him to keep on working on it. The Enterprise takes on the experimental medication from the Nightingale that might help battle the disease that is decimating the population of New Brindle. McCoy and Kirk discuss how the lower castes of their society got the disease first, but because the people of the upper caste thought they could not get the disease, they did nothing about it. Now that it's starting to spread to the upper caste, they are asking for Federation help. And unfortunately, the upper caste is embarking on a policy of killing people that have the disease to help stop its spread. 
R.J. Blaze approaches Spock, who is manning the con, and asks if Spock would accompany her to a place more private to discuss the captain. Spock replies, if you would prefer. She takes it as an affirmative and enters the turbo lift to go to Deck 10. Unfortunately, Spock has not left the con, and the protocol officer does not notice until the doors close and she is off to Deck 10. She returns to the bridge, mad as a hornet. Spock simply tells her privacy is important, particularly where it pertains to his personal and professional relationships. If Miss Blaze wants to get to know the man behind the captaincy of the Enterprise, Spock suggests she will have to address it with the captain. Blaze takes Spock up on his suggestion and approaches Kirk in a hallway. They have a good, sexual tension-filled comedy scene, worthy of a Meg Ryan romantic comedy. It ends with Blaze asking Kirk if they can continue the discussion in a less public place. He suggests Deck 10, which she says is exactly the deck she had in mind. As a turbolift again shuts its door with Blaze in it, all alone, Kirk walks away, and Blaze heads to Deck 10. Again. Back on Earth, the President and Vice Admiral Tomlinson heatedly debate turning Kirk over. The President says Kirk is a hero, that with his crew saved Earth itself. Tomlinson suggests that Kirk is an out-of-control officer that is better to turn over than trigger a war that could kill millions. The president relents and at least asks Tomlinson who would get Kirk then, the Nazel or the Klingons? As he leaves the president's office, Tomlinson suggests that they may have to cut Kirk in half. On New Brindle, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are walking outdoors and speaking with Prefect Witten, who proves to be a real tool. He sees nothing wrong with letting the Lowe's die since they are surplus population. But now, the real citizens are starting to die, and so something must be done. Suddenly, an afflicted, quote, low, bursts out of the crowd and is captured with four ropes. McCoy rushes forward to administer the experimental cure. The man, named Amsel, says he feels a bit better already, and that many others would be very interested in seeing Dr. McCoy. McCoy ends up administering the experimental cure to 100 adults in the first day, plus one child who Amzel begged should get the cure. Twelve hours later in Kirk's office on the Enterprise, McCoy reports the disease appears to be in remission for the inoculated. R.J. Blaze rings on the door and barges in. She says she and Kirk need to work together and that Kirk needs to get one thing straight. No one calls her Miss Blaze. Call her R.J. She turns around and leaves the office, and a perplexed Kirk and McCoy are left there wondering what just happened. The Prefect Witten calls up to the ship with bad news. Amzel has died, and the others that were injected are dying. The experimental drug provided only temporary relief. Kirk says they will continue to work on the cure, but the prefect simply says the upper castes are getting restless, so they are going back to their original contingency plan. Kill all the infected. To be continued. He seems like a bad dude. He is a... He, he's not a very nice man at all. No. Nope. I mean, they're... Uh, yeah. So they're really painting this guy as a really nasty individual that uh, absolutely has no idea about, or no worth for the lower uh, levels of the caste system that they have there. Yep. Yeah, he does not care for his people. No, and he absolutely sees, well, he cares for the upper castes, but he does not care about the lower castes. So, he doesn't, I don't think he even sees them as his people, uh, the yeah, lower I guess, castes. I guess so. So, it's really uh, unfortunate. Anyway. So, anyways, you were you were talking about DeFalco. You you thought he was a an awesome looking character. <laughs> uh, actually, that is my first note. As is mine. <laughs> okay, okay. So my big thing is, he, he's a pretty big guy. You know, a little chunky, human looking guy with a beak. But the big thing is those eagle feathers that make up his uh, his mustache. 
And of course, his hair kind of looks like feathery kind of thing, but really, it's the mustache that really gets me. And his name is Falcon, or Falco. Well, it's is <laughs> DeFalco, and in the past, we, we have met people named DeFalco, although not spelled the same. Right. And, and of course, I'm sh- I, I, I agree, you, you're probably going to spout off now some great history about this guy that I've no oh, clue no, about. Oh, no, I am not. Oh, okay, okay. I'm hoping this is the last time I ever see him. Yeah, because the mustache looks absolutely ridiculous. I mean, it's 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 a single perfect feather. Uh, and I don't know if you were ever a, a Cub Scout or a, a Boy Scout or whatever, but it looks like an eagle feather, and it's just a but it's all white. I mean, eagle feathers are usually black and white, but this is a completely white, and it's his entire left portion of his mustache is one feather, and then of course his other the other side of his mustache is another feather. It's very stupid looking. Yep. Right. Very. And he has glasses on top of that beak. It looks ridiculous. <laughs> right. So uh, you mentioned that the uh, back and forth with Kirk and Blaze reminded you of a Meg Ryan movie, but the whole thing, the whole time I was thinking was Empire Strikes Back. So oh, well. a lot of their back and forth seemed just like Han Solo's and Princess Leia's back and forth. Uh, you know, all, all the way to you know, don't call me something. You know, I mean, there's just I mean, she's saying, don't call me Miss Blaze. And then, you know, the, the Princess Leia was always calling, don't call me Your Highness or whatever. It just, I was really getting that vibe when I was reading this story. I didn't even think of that. But now that you mention it, I agree. Even to I the agree. pointing, and then they didn't really say anything, and then they're looks like they're about to kiss, and then the, in this one they storm off, but in an Empire Strikes Back, they, you know, C-3PO breaks them up. Anyways, that was, that's just the vibe I was getting. Yeah. But I think in The Empire Strikes Back, it ends up being Han that backs off a little bit uh, when he finally calls her Leia. Right. Um, Where here, it's RJ that's backing off and Kirk that's keeping up the full court press against her. Um, I think he's just playing hard to get. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but he does it for three issues. So, I mean, as we'll find out as this goes on, (laughs) he's pretty much being kind of a penis to her, but... (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> but but whatever. I mean, well, she she. I mean, obviously, she'd probably you know take advantage of the situation if he showed any uh, any weakness. But I mean, he's really not given. He's not given an inch. <laughs> right. Uh, in any of these issues. But. Now, I really liked the uh, the joke about the phaser vest or the phaser proof vest. Uh huh. And when I was a kid, you know, I read this issue when it came out. And I've always remembered that phaser-proof vest, but I could never remember where I had read it. Or oh. I, sometimes I would think that it was something that was in Star Trek VI. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I rewatched Star Trek VI the other day, and I was like, oh, it's not in here. It must be in a comic. But I was just it was just when I read that this time, I was like, ah, oh, here it is. This is hilarious. Yeah. And <laughs> it wasn't all that funny, but it was still no. pretty funny. Poor Futon. All right. What else do you got on this one? Another thing that I failed to to know is who the devil was the bearded middle-aged guy in the large frame picture in Lieutenant Lee's uh, room in her room. It looks a little bit like Richard Branson, but uh, (laughs) it it isn't Richard Branson. It's a little early for Richard Branson. Who is that? Yeah, I have no idea. I, I think, and this is, and this is not, this is not the last time we'll see somebody's face planted in this comic but i'm pretty sure that is a real person who for whatever reason uh they planted in in the comic yeah i'm sure it's an inside joke or something it's definitely not peter david but it might be somebody else but there is a spot during one of the no i think it's the next comic there's a spot where another romantic comedy thing is going on between blaze and kirk and there is a crewman who is turning around and looking straight at the two of them. And I don't know who that bearded person is, but I'm thinking it might be Peter David or some somebody else involved in the production. Okay. You'll have to point it out when we get there. When we get there, I'll do that. Oh, actually, no, it is this one. It's this issue. Look on page 14, middle right panel of page 14. Oh, yeah. He's wearing glasses and has that beard. Right. Yep, that's probably somebody too. 
that's probably somebody. And I was guessing it might have been Peter David, but who knows? It could have been anybody. But he, have... he's he's quite. I mean, when you first look at that panel of that drawing, obviously you're mainly looking at Blaze and Kirk. But then, if you look at it long enough, hey, who's that guy? <laughs> I mean, it's a full it's a full face thing there. I mean, right. why would they why would they even bother putting him in there unless there was some other meaning? I don't know. I don't know. That's that is funny. I I, I didn't notice that. Yeah. I'll have to go and look up, uh, see if I can find some pictures of Peter David or some of the other people that were involved in this. Right. Okay, let's see. Uh, I thought it was pretty... I I thought the funniest part of the comic was when Blaze was trying to pump Spock for info. I thought that was pretty funny. And she goes off into the turbo lift, and then Spock is just sitting there in the the captain's chair. That was pretty good. Unmoving. It's like... Boy, the, did you misinterpret me? <laughs> yeah, I love that she comes back and he says basically, you said that you wanted to talk more privately. I never said I was going to. <laughs> <laughs> and you yeah. definitely had an opportunity when you were in the turbo lift alone. But <laughs> anyway, So I thought that was pretty good. Yeah, that's all I have. So what do you think about Vice Admiral, or what's his name? Uh Vice Admiral Tomlinson. Uh, you know, I was beginning to think he was like a Klingon in the Zakai's or something. Uh, you know, some some mole that's been planted in Starfleet or something. This guy's a jerk. And as we continue to see in the next issue, he continues to be a jerk. I mean, I, I just don't get it. I mean, who is this guy that he thinks he can override? Well, as we'll see in the next issue, he's in a situation where he inserts himself into the discussion between the president and these two... Uh, numbnuts and right. uh and he's totally going over the head of the president so it's like who the heck do you think you are man yeah he he, he does seem to have some weird motivations yeah and he and he's a vice admiral so he's not even an admiral yet so i mean who is this guy i don't know it, it's going to be interesting when it comes out uh in in i, I guess the next set of issues but right i guess we'll find out um oh, one thing i did did just I just mentioned the obvious. It's pretty obvious that the New Brindle disease that's going on now, they're trying to say that that's the equivalent of today's AIDS epidemic. So they're making a comment on the whole AIDS epidemic thing, obviously. Yeah, I was thinking about that too. Yeah. The whole we should quarantine them or whatever. Oh, that or they were just talking about leprosy in the past. I mean, because that is kind of how they tried to cure leprosy back in the day. Well... I mean, they didn't go as far well, as killing them. Well, did they kill people? They isolated them. No, 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 they isolated them. Right. I think they're just taking it one step further. Where I think, and, and they probably didn't do much about leprosy back in the day because they probably had no, I mean, they had no means to do anything. I mean, they, they, med, medicine was pretty primitive back then. But today, we have more options. Uh, I mean, we could put more money towards AIDS. Although, uh, I must say, it seems like the the mortality rate has improved with the AIDS disease over the past 20 years or so, or however long it's been out, 15, 20 years. Right. Um, but still, I mean, that was a big point they were making when AIDS was really starting to get going. Yeah. Like there wasn't a lot of money being put towards it. Yeah, that's when this book was coming out, so yeah. I, I think you're right. I thought the same thing when I read it. Yeah. Okay, All so right, now we're... I'm done. <laughs> okay. All right, next up is Star Trek VI. Uh, came out March 1990. I believe the credits are all the same, so we won't go through with them. They are. So, uh, the title of this book is called Cure All. So, it starts off with the cover, which shows Kirk and Blaze are staring defiantly at each other. Behind them are headshots of the Klingon ambassador, Sala, and dozens of infected new Brindians. Brindians. However they call themselves. The aliens that have the plague. Starts off on Earth in the council president's office. Sala and the Klingon ambassador continue to fight over who will get to kill Kirk. The president states that their desire to kill Kirk is irrational and pleads with them... Uh, to see that all life is worth fighting for. We flash to a splash page that shows Dr. McCoy pleading with a hooded executioner carrying a huge axe. 
Behind McCoy is a long line of infected aliens waiting their turn at the chopping block. Prefect Witten appears and tells McCoy that he had a chance and that they must now kill all of the infected. As the executioner is about to swing on the first infected, McCoy attacks and pulls the hood, revealing his own face. The executioner version of McCoy states that the real version of McCoy uh, is always doing one or the other. He's either killing or he's curing. The scalpel cuts two ways. Just then, McCoy wakes from his desk with an obvious start. He's uh, He makes a little yelp, actually. The yelp is loud enough that it brings the medical assistant named Samson and the security officer Futon in to see what was the matter. McCoy explains that he uh, is very close to the cure. He has samples of the diseases in these little vials, uh, so they know they can contain it. They just need to find a way to cure it. So on the bridge, Kirk is sitting there when he is confronted by R.J. Blaze, who gives him a hard time about avoiding her. He states that he's too busy saving lives. Sulu and Lieutenant Lee arrive on the bridge. Sulu suggests that they might meet up after their shifts, but Lee sadly declines, leaving Sulu to wonder what happened between the two of them. Prefect Witten contacts Kirk, and after confirming his identity... He gives an ultimatum. He will kill all of the infected in 12 hours unless Kirk turns himself over so that he can collect the bounty on Kirk's head. Kirk orders his senior crew to the briefing room. Blaze refuses to get on the turbo lift when she hears that he says they're going to deck 10, thinking that it's some sort of trick uh, like we've seen Kirk and Spock play on her over the last couple of issues. Back on Earth, the president continues to discuss Kirk's bounty with Sala and Ambassador, and his name is Ambassador Camarag. I had to look that one up. Uh, when Vice Admiral Tomlinson barges in and says that something must or might be able to be worked out. In the briefing room, Blaze arrives late since she went to Deck 10 only to find out that the briefing room is actually on Deck 8. So they got her after all. She claims that Kirk is too reckless and that he cannot turn himself in. All of the crew agree. Even Spock states that the loss of Kirk would be an unfortunate circumstance. Kirk orders McCoy to continue to work on the cure, and the meeting is adjourned. After the briefing, Chekhov speaks to Futon about the plight. Futon is appalled that Kirk is considering turning himself in. McCoy and Kirk also have a sidebar where Kirk proposes that McCoy is working himself to death due to what he remembered in Star Trek V about his father's death. McCoy denies it, and when he returns to his office, he notices the, a sample of the virus is missing. The demon-looking woman, Mira, and Sulu share a turbo lift where she puts the moves on him. He seems not to notice her advances, and when they arrive on the bridge, Miera gives Lieutenant Lee the old stink eye when she notices that Lee uh, is smiling back at Sulu when he returns. Back on the planet, Witten is taking a nap when Futon arrives and injects him with something. Futon returns to the ship, and a hypnotized Trinsky snaps out of her hypnotized state after Futon departs the transporter room. So he somehow hypnotized her, beamed down, injected the prefect, and then beamed back up. Uh, so in the hallway, Futon calmly places the vial into a disposal slot. All right, so we flash to Kirk when he is contacted by Witten now that the deadline is up. When the leader appears on the screen, we see that he is infected with these huge boils and uh, looks very nasty. He pleads with Kirk and McCoy to save him and save his people. And then back on Earth, Vice Admiral Tomlinson tells Sala and Camarag that the good thing about them both wanting Kirk's head on a platter is that platters can be divided. To be continued. So that uh, Vice Admiral Tomlinson is a bad dude. He is just bad. A very, very bad man. So, uh, not that that 
imitation had anything to do with this question, but what what nationality do you think Tomlinson is? I don't know. I, I think I think in some panels his color's kind of weird. It is a little like, weird. Like, is he an alien or is he uh, or is he human? I don't know. He he's darker skinned. Uh, he has very arched eyebrows and a receding hairline. Right. And but his color doesn't quite look like what how they depict you know African people, so it it doesn't quite look like a normal black skinned individual. No. It, it's just a little off. It, it looks almost like there's gray mixed in there too, like a brown gray kind of color. I don't know. Anyway, whatever he is, he's a real jerk. And why does he have it out so much for uh, for Kirk? I don't know. I bet we find out soon, don't you? I think so. Because this guy has a bone to pick with Kirk. Yeah, so... Yeah, there, there, so there, there's, some, there's some extra things going on behind here. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, nobody in Starfleet should be able to sanction the bounty on Kirk's head. No, of course not. They're all good guys. Right. Except for this guy. Right. Yeah. So I think uh, McCoy's uh, dream sequence at the beginning was kind of interesting. Did you know it was a dream right off the bat? No, I did not know it was a dream at first. Although I was thinking to myself when I was reading, it's like, well, it seems pretty unlikely. Well, first off, the guy looks like a true executioner. That seems odd. You know, a traditional, you know, kind of medieval executioner kind of style guy. Right. And, uh, And the idea that... McCoy would actually run up to him and try to physically stop him seemed very odd. It's like something's wrong here. But I didn't realize it was a dream. Yeah, when you look at the line uh, that that all of the uh, the infected are standing in, yeah. I mean, it that looks kind of weird too. Yeah, the line like floats in the air and it's above a lava yeah. field, and it looks like something from Masters of the Universe or something like Castle Grayskull or something like that. No, oh. <laughs> so. Uh, I, I, I knew pretty much right away that something's not right here. Yeah, right. But it is uh, sad because you see like little babies cradling in, in, in the mother's arms and stuff waiting yeah. to get killed. It's it's a pretty sad plight for these people. Yeah. Well, that poor little little kid that ended up getting injected, you know, one of the, the 101st person or whatever to get injection. It's like yeah. that kid's dead. It's like, oh, yeah. that's, that's, oh, that's too bad. Yeah, well, that's why it made sense that McCoy would be having this this problem because right. he tried to help a hundred of them and and they all died. And now, right. if he doesn't continue, he's they're all going to die. Right. Right. So uh, I will comment that the <laughs> and you know not everything comes from Star Wars, by the way. But I will say that pulling the hood off and seeing his face was a little rep- reminiscent of uh, seeing Luke's face in Vader's helmet. Yeah. In the second movie. Right. Okay. Just thought I'd mention it. It just reminded me of that. <laughs> I could see that. I didn't th- I didn't think that at the time, but I see what you're saying. So how about Prefect Witten? I mean, he's a real scummy character, huh? Huh? <laughs> huh? Yeah. I like that last line. Please save my people. <laughs> yes, which even underscores the depths of his uh, villainy. Yeah, he's uh he'll go to any depths. I, I don't know. You you kind of talked about Futon earlier and you thought that his character path was going to go a different direction. Mhm. And I told you that I kind of knew that it wasn't. Um Yeah, he's not he's he's not quite at the he's a little more Machiavellian than what he was led to believe in those first couple of issues where it sounded like he would you know, he was always following the rules, and then here he is. Definitely breaking the rules, but probably for the right reason. Right. And he also had the ability to get the transporter chief to transport him down to do this, which was very odd. Th- th- this guy has powers that are being disclosed over time. Right. It's probably those weird eyeballs. He can just hypnotize people. <laughs> Look into my eyes. They're very weird. Yeah, he has those multifaceted, like, bug yeah, eyes. Exactly, like a fly eye or something. Right. Very odd. But, yeah, he's uh, he's got more going on there. 
and, and you know, as far as what direction he was going in, I just thought he was going to end up, uh, you know, sacrificing himself to, you know, saving Kirk from an assassination attempt. That's the direction I thought he was going in. Yeah, which but, I, I, I can't remember definitely, but I don't, I don't remember that happening. But right, I've been but, surprised before. Right, but though he didn't give up his life, he he by doing this, he did save Kirk. Uh, by uh, and the, all the lowlies exactly by uh, by infecting him. It's actually a really elegant solution to the problem. <laughs> well, he learned from Kirk because I mean, just a couple of issues ago, he saw Kirk pretend to vaporize one leader for not doing the right thing. Right, and right. now he's kind of doing the same thing where he's infecting one with the same disease. Exactly, but uh, at least in this case. Uh, there's probably a stronger possibility that Witten's going to die. <laughs> uh, I mean, if Kurt, I mean, if uh, McCoy isn't able to come up with the cure in time, I bet he does. McCoy he usually does. That. He usually does. But he usually doesn't kill 101 people either. But so, yeah, it's all in the timing. Right. If we're lucky, Witten will die, and then, 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 like, like one minute later, I found the cure because this you know, Witten needs to go. <laughs> now I, I don't know. I, this this came out right after Star Trek Five, so it was still fresh on everybody's mind. Right. But some of this, these references to Star Trek Five in this issue and last issue seem a little forced. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, they didn't have to go into that that McCoy reference about his father and stuff. They really went on a, a while with that. Well, well, what's the what's the other reference? Oh, the Sulu or not Sulu. Um, the love between Ahura and oh right right Scotty. right 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 yeah that's true I mean they could have just never mentioned that and and nobody would I mean especially if they're not going to do anything with it then nobody's going to nobody's probably going to question right and this I mean Kirk's giving him a hard time but he did just kill a hundred and one people and yeah he would beat himself up about it and kill himself over working on it I don't see why that would have anything to do with Cybok making him remember his father and in fact cybok didn't really make him remember cybok helped him forgive himself so it really didn't make sense i mean if cybok really did what he was saying he was doing which was relieve you of all your anxieties or whatever right then he really shouldn't care about his what happened to his dad anymore well but yeah but okay so but what you're saying is a magic wand i mean you can still Accept something more so, so that you can live with it. But okay. really, I mean, he killed his father uh, for the best intentions. But I mean, is he really truly going to be over that unless Cybok's magical powers, um, you know, totally wiped it out? Right. You know, which I didn't. I, I hope. I, I don't think that's the case. I think he made. I think he made McCoy see that he did it. He did it for the for the right reasons. And shit happens. So, you know, accept it. But in the end, you know, you still did it. So there will always be some guilt. Anyway, whatever. Right. Yeah. So this, this yeah. is the one that I was talking about uh, last issue where I just don't see Sala, you know, the badass Sala from the first couple issues just sitting around the president's table, having tea, talking to the Klingon and the president <laughs> about, I think that I should be the one who kills him. Yeah. Two sugars, please. I mean, <laughs> I just like it's like to me, it's like, I mean, even though we've only seen.